Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and glorify you. And Lord, I know that many times we come to you and sometimes it feels like we're praying to an empty sky. That like a plane that goes up, our prayers come crashing down and we don't know why. But Lord, we pray that you would hear us, that you would consider us. Lord, we pray that as we cry out to you, that Lord, we could come to you on your terms. In contrition, repentance, and humility. That Lord, we would be willing to expose our hearts and our circumstances. That, Lord, we would allow you to penetrate into the deepest recesses of our mind and of our heart. And that you would place your finger on the issues that you want exposed. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. For your great love and your great patience. Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that this would be a time not only of reflection, but of consideration of who you are and what you want in friendship and in relationship with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah, beginning in chapter 59, and I'm going to just read the first few verses. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Remember what the book of Isaiah is. It's, it's a book about the glorious throne of Jehovah, the Holy One. Remember this gigantic book that we've made our way through deals with, in the beginning, the judgment of God and then the comfort of God. And we've seen as we've walked through the pages of Isaiah, the Judah prophecies, the foreign prophecies, the warnings and promises, the historical section, redemption promised and redemption provided and redemption realized. And now we're making our way towards the end of the book. We've dealt with the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God. We've considered the grace and the compassion and the glory of God. And this chapter deals with what it means to have a broken friendship and a broken relationship with God. Remember what Isaiah has been doing. He's been speaking of the nation's hypocrisy and their need to repent. In chapter 58, Isaiah spoke of the wrong way to fast and God's chosen fast. The Lord addressed the problem of their improper observance of the Sabbath and then the benefits of being guided by the Lord. And in this chapter, chapter 59, we see some of the fruit of their rebellion. Bloodshed in verse 3 of chapter 59. For your hands are defiled with blood, lying and hypocrisy. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words. They speak lies. Verse 5, they hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. The fruit of rebellion, bloodshed, lying, bad behavior. And so what's the net result of rebellion and disobedience? What's the net result of Judah's sin? Their prayers are going unanswered. 
Remember, Isaiah is written 180 years before Jerusalem's the, the destruction and then the captivity. They've been going through the religious motions and, and they don't understand. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. How come God isn't listening to me? When I pray and I call out to Him, how come He's not hearing me? They've experienced darkness and despair and gloom and spiritual blindness and utter frustration. They want justice, but justice can't be found, and they cry out to God. Isaiah begins the chapter with a a description of Israel's sin and suffering, and then he's going to continue with a supplication, a, a a prayer. It becomes a response from Isaiah's rebuke. In other words, when all of these things begin to take place, there's confession of sin. So the chapter moves from suffering to supplication, and then the chapter ends with a peek at the Savior. Israel's Messiah, the plight of Israel, and then the plan of God. And what is God's plan? Ultimately, the ultimate plan of God is to punish sin and to pursue righteousness. There will come a time when all the earth will experience God's judgment, God's wrath. But there will also come a time when His name will be glorified and His people will be blessed. And when will that time come? The Bible gives a promise that in Messiah's kingdom, in the Messianic kingdom, some of you are familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The the, uh, Prince of Narnia and and the Dawn Treader series and all of that stuff. And what's really wonderful about it is he takes you on a fantastic journey to a different time in a different place And for some of us who read the Bible, we think of Messiah's kingdom as a different time and a different place. But over and over again, Isaiah is pushing us further and further away from this world and to the world that will come. Away from the despair and the depression and the depravity of this world to a world that will come. And then the promise is made. Have you ever had a conversation with a friend? Or a loved one that went something like this. Hey, how's it going? And their response was, my wife has left me. My husband has left me. My marriage is coming to an end. A lifelong friendship has come to an end. A family has been torn apart. Few things are more painful than the breakup of a, of a loving relationship. How do friendships, how do loving relationships come to an end? How does this happen when two people genuinely love each other? How do you explain the pain and the suffering because the heart longs for intimacy? It longs for companionship. What happens when one person ceases to love the other person? Sometimes there's hostility. Sometimes there's unbearable pain that courses through the heart of the rejected partner. Unfaithfulness, whether caused by sexual sin or disloyalty or betrayal or breach of trust or deceitfulness or treachery. You name it. But the net result is rejection and broken trust. And you get a tiny, tiny peek into the heart of God. A tiny, tiny picture 
of God's broken heart as he longs for, he longs for friendship and relationship with his people. And we can sympathize with that kind of pain. But we seldom think about God's broken heart. We seldom think about the fact that the whole world is guilty before God and wicked and that sin has separated us from a glorious and loving Father. And so God is going to send a message through the prophet, a love note, a willingness to forgive sin and again restore relationship. And he sends the prophet to answer their question, why aren't you listening? And here's what he says. Behold. The Lord's hand isn't shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Now, before you lose hope, I want to point something out to you. The first step in saving a broken relationship is to acknowledge that it can be saved. God, why aren't you hearing my prayer? I'm going to send a prophet and he's going to explain to you why. It's because of the sin. It's because of rebellion. The people needed to understand one unmistakable fact. And this is the one unmistakable fact that they couldn't get wrong. God loves you. God is willing to save you. Will you let him? The Lord can hear. The Lord can answer prayer. When it says the Lord's hand is not shortened, that means that his arm is long enough to reach down. Here is the idea. Obviously, when you're praying to God and it doesn't feel like God is listening to your prayers, we sometimes think, am I in a place? Am I in a dark place that, that God can't find me? He can't reach me? Is he aware that I'm even here? And the answer is, yes, he's aware that you're. There's no dark place. There's no sinful place. There's no wicked place of resistance and rebellion that you can go to that God can't find you. He can find you. You're not outside of his reach. And this becomes important for the person who who considers and asks the question, I'm too far gone. I've gone too far. I've gone to a place where even God can't find me. Not true. You're not outside of God's reach. The Lord is able to reach his people. And when it says that his ear isn't heavy, that means that his ear is not deaf. And just like in the ancient world, just like in the modern world, in the ancient world, sometimes when you get older, your hearing starts to go. And people are thinking, well, is the self-existent creator of heaven and earth? I mean, is he so old that he's starting to go a little deep? In other words, is God in a situation where, hello? Is he so far away that he can't hear you? No, the answer is he can hear you. The Lord's ear, now listen carefully. The Lord's ear is sensitive and alert. Have you ever been in a heightened state of awareness and you just can hear a pin drop or you've been you're just like totally awake in the middle of the night and the clock the tick 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 of the clock the drip 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 every little sound you you hear a mouse run across the floor god is sensitive 
God is alert. Listen carefully. God always hears every word spoken by His people. Well, then what's the problem? Why, why isn't he, he listening? Why, then why isn't the help coming? Again, in hardship and captivity, their, their sins had separated them from the Lord. And apparently, as they cried out to the Lord, it was as if no help was coming and they couldn't understand why. And so the, the first thing that the prophet does is he explains that God can help. And second, that sin is the problem. That sin is a barrier that keeps us and separates us from God. Verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. The wicked, the sinner, is separated from God, alienated from God because of sin. And that's why it becomes such a difficult thing when you're talking with your unbelieving family and your unbelieving friends. I prayed, and, and there doesn't seem to be any answer from God. Well, that's because sin is the real problem. The wicked, the sinner, is separated from God, alienated from God. When people lie, and when people cheat, and when they steal, and when they harm, and when they sin against each other, this may shock you, but it offends God. And our sin separates us from God. Why? Because He's holy. Remember what we learned in chapter 57, how he dwells in a high and a holy place. Remember in Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place with him who is contrite and humble of spirit. In other words, he dwells in a place where we can't go. You can't get that high and you can't be that holy. So how can you find him? In humility and contrition and repentance. You can find him. That's where, that's where you can find him. He dwells in perfect righteousness. and He loves and he cares for us. But think carefully for just a moment. He will not tolerate wickedness. He despises it. And when we mistreat each other, whether it's in the form of abuse or lying or theft or immorality or greed or covetousness or however we choose to oppress one another, the reality is when you make the choice to sin, when you make the choice to sin, you are also making the choice to live without God. To not include Him in your friendship and relationship. You see, and that's the challenge that we have as wicked and sinful people. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. And so we have conversations with God. You understand, I'm only human, right? You made me human. Certainly you understand what it means to be human. Everybody makes mistakes. We're all human. Or my little rebellion, my little resistance, my little sin, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. But it does matter. It matters to God. It matters to Him. Because He loves you and He values your friendship and fellowship. And so when you make the choice to sin, you also make the choice to live without God, without His friendship and His fellowship. 
And you might be thinking, well, no, I'm not. I want God. Really? Yeah, I want God, but I also want my girlfriend and I want my boyfriend. Lord, I want God and I want chocolate. Lord, I want God and I want... And you can fill in the blank with whatever it is that you want to fill it in with. A relationship always involves two people. And when you choose to sin, God turns his face away from you and he won't answer the prayers. No matter how religious you are, no matter how strongly you profess to know him and love him, your wicked behavior, my wicked behavior creates a cloud more than a cloud. It creates a wall that separates us and the Lord won't respond to our pleas. But you have to understand something. There's more. The only way... Not only will he not respond to our pleas, but we face certain judgment. And here's what I mean by judgment. Remember what it says in the New Testament. God is not mocked. What a person sows, that also he or she reaps. We can't live in disobedience and rebellion, oppression and mistreatment. We can't hurt each other over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and not experience the consequences. Do you remember what David wrote in Psalm 66:18? He said, "If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear." Do you want God to answer your prayer? Then make sure that you don't regard iniquity in your heart. Make sure there's no unconfessed sin in your life. Remember what it says in 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Unanswered prayer may be what John Corson calls, number one, a failure to reveal. Number two, a failure to request. Number three, a failure to respect. Number four, a failure to release. And number five, a failure to read. And I really like this. He, he basically summarizes, we conceal our sin rather than reveal it. We fail to ask. That is, we fail to request the Lord to meet our needs. We come to the wrong conclusion that I can meet my own need. I don't really need God. I can take care of this myself. And so we seek to meet our own needs and our own resources, our own strength. Peter gives another reason our prayers fail to be answered. It says, likewise, you husbands dwell with them, speaking of the wife, according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. The point? Make Sure, you're treating your wife right. Wrong relationships in the marriage put your prayers at risk and a failure to release. That is unforgiveness. Remember in Matthew 6, 14, it says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And in Proverbs 28.9, it has this interesting statement. The writer of Proverbs says, 
one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Isn't that interesting? One who turns away his ear from hearing the law. The idea, in this case, the law being the Torah, being the Bible, being the written revelation of God. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to read the Bible. Why not? I get convicted. I know, isn't it great? No, it's not great. Why not? Because it's asking me to change, and I don't want to change. Wow, then you're right. That is a problem. Because to expect a person to change apart from repentance is to expect hypocrisy and failure. Just be the best person you possibly can be. Just do your best. The Bible doesn't say be the best person you can be and be your best. The Bible says fully, finally, completely turn from your sin in an act of repentance. Turn away from it. Turn to the strength and the mercy that God will give to you. So neglecting the scriptures and refusing to to hear the Torah or the Bible means you you remove yourself from the revelation of God. And, And you know what happens when you remove yourself from the revelation of God? You also remove yourself from the heart of God. Because in the Scripture, it reveals the heart of God. And over and over again, the revelation of the heart of God is, I love you, I'm willing to take you back, I'm willing to exercise mercy and forgiveness and compassion towards you. The church must be a house of prayer, but it also has to be a school for the Scriptures. And if your prayers aren't being answered... The solution isn't to stop praying. The solution is to search your heart. Search your heart. Lord, is there something inside of me that is fundamentally wrong, that is making you unhappy? Is there something fundamentally inside of me? Is there a person that you have brought into my life that I am mistreating? And you need me to stop. And look what it says in verse 3. I'm going to read from verses 3 through 8. The gross behavior of the wicked. Look what it says. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice. Nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. Ooh, yes, that's like satanic sushi. And from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They've made themselves crooked paths. 
whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Look at the laundry list. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. And perversity here means twistings. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity in verse 4. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats their egg dies. Do you remember the song? you remember that old? You guys are mostly too young to remember. There was a song that went, I don't like spiders and snakes. And that ain't what it takes to love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't like spiders and snakes. Neither does the Lord. Well, you might think, well, why did he make so many of them? You know what's interesting? This particular passage is reiterated in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Remember what I told you, that the most quoted book in the New Testament is the book of Psalms. The second most quoted book in the New Testament is this book. And Paul takes this particular passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, and I'm going to read it to you as it is written, There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul speaks of, an open tomb filled with the rotting decay of corpses, poison, bloodshed, destruction, misery. Now, why is all of this important for you and me? Because it's talking about sin. You see, sin isn't just a mistake. It's not just a faux pas. It's not just an incorrect way of thinking. It isn't simply an oversight. It isn't simply a weakness. Both Isaiah and Paul are pointing out that the inevitable place where sin takes you is it begins with alienation and separation from God, but it eventually ends in the destruction of your family of your friendships and eventually your world. Martin Luther used to say, I find it impossible to avoid offending guilty men for there's no way of avoiding it but, it, but by our silence or their patience. And silent we cannot be because of God's command and patient they cannot be because of their guilt. Do you understand what he's saying? That when you open up the Bible and you begin to read from Romans chapter 3 and you begin to read Isaiah 59 and you find out just how deeply grieved, how wicked, how wrong, 
how terrifying sin becomes and the consequences that it creates, we begin, we, we begin, we begin to see the heart of God. In verse 6 it says, Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their, their, their works are works of iniquity. And the act of violence is in their hands. Over and over again he's saying, Their webs, this is the web of deception. They wear them like a garment, but it is a, you can see right through it. Nor will they cover themselves with their works. Well, but I'm doing good works. I'm providing for the poor. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm trying... You know, I'm giving lots and lots of money. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But again, God says, you know what? That isn't going to cut it. I actually really, truly, fully, completely care about the way that you're treating your sister. The way you're treating your mother. The way you're treating your brother. The way you're treating each other. And look what it says. Their feet run to evil. In other words, it isn't a reluctant hauling away. They run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. People go out of their way to do that which is wicked and that which is wrong. And I can't help but thinking in verse 7 of the abortion holocaust that's taking place in our country and around the world. They quickly shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity wasting and destruction are in their paths. Here is the idea. There's this compounding of wickedness and evil and wickedness and evil. And some of you have expressed your frustration to me. I can't I can't look at the newspaper anymore. I can't watch TV anymore. I, I can't do it anymore. I can't search the internet anymore. Mike handed me something from his mom. There was a man in Nicaragua who apparently took a dog, a starving dog, off the streets, put it in his studio, put a leash on the dog, and then watched the dog die. And you know what he called it? Art. So that people could just come in and then observe a poor animal being starved to death right before your eyes. How, how, do you, how do you process this? How do you process the wickedness and the evil? Many police officers go to our fellowship and I know, I know the life that they live. The constant bombardment of drug addicts, hookers, prostitutes and and thieves and criminals and people breaking all kinds of laws for all kinds of reasons and you see the seedy side of humanity and you wonder if there's any good, if there's any decent, if there's anything good and decent anywhere at any time. And the reality is there is a God who sees the wickedness day in day out and he cares about it day in and day out and you see the gradual results as it unfolds on the society look what it says in verse 9 therefore justice is far from us nor does righteousness overtake us we look for light but there is darkness for brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if as if we 
had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. When it says, therefore, justice is far from us, you might, in moments of disgust, go, isn't anyone going to do what's right? Isn't anyone going to do what's fair? Nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. Is there a way out of this dark circumstances? Will there come a time when our government will start, will stop being greedy? Probably not, huh? We elect politicians and they make promises. And they're all together now. And then what do they do? They break promises. And so you get disgusted and disturbed. Why should I even vote? What does it even matter? Why should I even care? What does it, it even matter? We look for light, but there is darkness for brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at new day, at, as in twilight. The idea is, in broad, people are, are doing things wickedly in broad daylight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears. Isn't that funny? Oh, you know, I just... Things are just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. You lower your voice and you have that grovelly kind of way of talking. We moan sadly like doves. We look for justice. Think about it. Evil. Wickedness. Compounded. Day by day. By so many people. You see it on the TV. You hear it on the radio. It's solicited for, for you on the internet. Think for a moment. That only the most gross, only the most wicked, only the most perverse things will capture the attention of the news outlets. Do you think ABC, CBS, or NBC are going to go, a husband left his wife today? So, they'll say, unless it's somebody famous. And somebody was shot and killed today. You know, unless it's two or three people killed, you're not even going to make the news. We as a people and as a culture become more and more desensitized to the immorality and to the crime. And make no mistake about it, when Isaiah is writing these words, he's writing the words to a generation that was facing the same hardship and pain that our generation is facing. Wickedness grows and grows and grows. Society had become consumed by the cancer of wickedness and with sin. And look what it says. Isaiah breaks out into a prayer in verse 12. He, he begins to pray. Not just for himself, but for the people. He begins to pray. Isaiah prays, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails. 
And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Look in verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. There are three common words, three Hebrew words used over and over and over again to describe wicked behavior. They're all contained in that one verse. Transgression. Sin. Iniquity. You know what transgression is? It's crossing the line. It's where God draws a line and you come right up to the line and then you stick your toe over the line. There's something perverse inside of us, isn't it? You can go this far and no further and then we just go. There's something inside of us. There's some perversity inside us that's always wanting to cross the line. And sin, it isn't simply doing what's wrong. Sin is also a failure to do what's right. We cross the line. We do what's wrong. We fail to do what's right. And we exercise iniquity. The wicked people have only one hope. To confess their sin. To abandon their sin. And that's what he's offering the prayer. You will never confess a sin, by the way, that you're unwilling to acknowledge. Lord, I may or may not have done something wrong. If I may or may not have done something wrong. Please forgive or not forgive, depending on whether or not I may or may not have done something wrong. No, just be honest with them. Lord, my thoughts are wicked. My mouth has been wicked. My heart has been filled with wickedness. What were the people to do with their hypocrisy? What were they to do with their rebellion? What were they to do with their lies? What were they to do with their sins against the Lord? They were to confess that they had transgressed the boundaries and the borders that God had established. We've committed many sins. We've fallen short of the glory of God, and that's what Paul means in Romans chapter 3. Make no mistake about it, he would have soaked himself in the text of Isaiah. That's the meaning. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. There's none righteous. No, not one. And in verse 13, in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. The idea being it just slipped out. It was a mistake. It just sort of slipped out. No, it was born in your heart. It was conceived in there. It was nurtured. It grew. And then it spoke. Justice is turned back. Remember what justice is. It's a refusal to give honor to whom honor is due. And righteousness stands afar off. For truth has fallen in the street. And equity cannot enter. In other words, those standards whereby behavior was governed stopped. Truth exists. But people deny the truth, don't they? 
We live in a culture and a society that's constantly suggesting, well, you know, there really is no truth. Truth is what you make it. No, the Bible makes it abundantly clear. Truth. God created the heavens and the earth. Truth. God created Adam and Eve. Truth. God placed them in a garden. Truth. They sinned. Truth. God's plan and purpose and revelation has always been to provide a redeemer so that people could come back. And look what it says. So truth fails. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Have you noticed that there comes a point where it's not good enough simply to stop doing what's wrong, but people actively, wickedly, aggressively pursue what is evil, and then they persecute the righteous. It's not good enough to just simply disagree. Oh, you're such a goody-goody. You're such a goody-two-shoes. For you to care about this, who really cares? Well, guess what? When you embrace the truth, you become a target for a wicked culture. There's a movie that's come out that I can't wait to see. It's called Expelled. And in the movie Expelled, even though I've seen clips of the movie and I haven't really seen the movie, my understanding of the premise of the movie is it's not good enough for people to to just simply claim that there's a God or that God created the heavens and the earth, the moment as a scientist you suggest that, that this universe has a design, that it was created by a creator, and that there's rhyme and reason and purpose in the physical universe, you are persecuted. Your Books won't be published. Your papers won't be included in scientific journals. And if you're a teacher or a professor at a university, if they can't get rid of you, they won't grant you tenure. So what happens if you suggest, what happens if you suggest that there's a holy and a righteous God? What happens if you suggest that, that, that revelation is contained in the Bible? What, what happens if you suggest that the Bible is true? What happens if you believe and embrace the method of Jesus, or the message of Jesus? You're a nut. You're a religious nut. I mean, I believe in God. But you're a religious nut. You read the Bible and go to church on Sunday and Wednesday? The wicked persecuted the few people who dared to be righteous. That's what Isaiah is saying. The few people that really did take a stand, they tried to drive them away. The only hope for their generation, the only hope for any generation was to confess their wickedness and expose their sin and cry out to God for mercy and a Savior. And look what it says in verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. Accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will 
fully repay. So when you look at verse 17, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Where have you read that? Yeah, in Ephesians chapter 6. Remember when Paul is in prison and he's talking about the spiritual warfare that's coming down and he encourages you to put on the breastplate of righteousness and he encourages you to put on the helmet of salvation? So why does the Lord put on the breastplate of righteousness? And why does the Lord put on the helmet of salvation? I want you to think for just a moment. Isaiah is describing the Lord as a well-armed warrior, like a well-armed soldier. The Lord prepares himself to execute judgment on the earth. The breastplate of righteousness protects the heart. God's heart is set on justice. God's heart is set on righteousness. When he judges, he judges righteously and he judges justly. And if the people will live righteous and if they'll, they'll live with justice in their heart, they, they never, they, they never, they never have to fear judgment. If you live righteously, and justly before God. You'll never have to fear judgment from God. By the way, we live in a world where is it possible for a police officer to misunderstand your motives and your behavior? Is it possible that you can be arrested and you can be in prison and people just completely, completely make a mistake about you? Yeah, that is possible, isn't it? But it's not possible for God. He will never make a mistake about you. He will never misunderstand your motives. He will never misjudge your behavior. The helmet of salvation protects the head, the mind. In God's case, his mind, listen carefully, his mind is made up. His mind is focused on salvation. His mind is focused on the deliverance of his people and the world from wickedness. And therefore, the Lord God in mercy will save his people before the judgment falls upon the wicked. That's the idea. The Lord will send a savior. The Lord will be the intercessor. The Lord is willing to enter into the battle and fight for the people. Listen carefully. That's what's being said. If you'll confess your sin and turn from your sin, he'll hear you. And he's willing to fight for you. That's the idea. He's willing to fight for you. The Lord puts on the armor of vengeance. He wraps himself in the cloak of zeal. He executes justice and judgment on the earth. And throughout history, the Lord insists that judgment belongs to him. Remember in the New Testament, it says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And when he's ready, he will execute judgment on the wicked for those who have defied and denied and rejected him, as well as those who have cursed and persecuted his, his people. And here's the promise. Just like God promises a Savior, He also promises a day of judgment. And in the promise that He makes concerning the day of judgment, no one will escape. As a matter of fact, in verse 18 it says, According to their deeds, accordingly He will repay fury to His adversaries, recompense to His enemies, the coastlands. The coastlands become a reference to the, the, the countries that are far, far away. The idea in the ancient world is, well, if I go to Fiji, God won't find me. 
New Zealand, Tasmania. What if I go to Antarctica and I build an ice fortress? He won't be able to find me there. No, he will find you. He will find you no matter where you go. (laughs) And he will fully repay. Sort of makes you rethink, huh? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Is Jesus in heaven crying sadly over the sin of the world? Perhaps. Perhaps not. He will repay. Look what it says. He will repay according to their deeds. He knows exactly everything perfectly. And the glory and the greatness of Messiah's kingdom, look what it says, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. That means the whole earth. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. So what is this? This is a picture of Messiah's kingdom. The people will respect the Lord. They'll honor His name, they'll glorify God. Look in verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion, and those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord in verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Jerusalem. Zion is a a type and a picture of the holy city. The Redeemer will come to Jerusalem. Not to Salt Lake. Not to Brooklyn. Not to Mecca or Medina. And the Redeemer will come. And remember in the, in the Jewish culture, do you know who the Redeemer was? The Redeemer was the close relative who could pay the price for your debt. I'm in, my, I'm, I'm in over my head. I'm, I'm so far in debt, I'm in over my head. Well, guess what? The largest debt that you owe is the debt that you owe to God. And the, the largest debt that you have is the debt of sin. And God's willing to pay your debt in full, completely. He will bring his glory to everyone who repents. And look what it says in verse 21. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants descendants says the Lord for this time and forevermore and so the Lord says as for me says the Lord this is my covenant with them Ray Ortland writes and you need to hear this quote what is a covenant a biblical covenant is God pledging himself binding himself to, to us in, in such a way that he becomes our God and we become his people. We've made the world a mess, but God will not accept defeat because his love is not a favorable mood swing. He loves us for reasons deep in his own being, and he declares his love with a solemn oath. That's found in Hebrews chapter 6, by the way, verse 13 through 20. He guarantees our future, and he explains how he's going to get us there. He gives us the Spirit. He gives us his word, and he'll never take them away. We should never separate the Spirit and the word. God doesn't. And we need both. Without the Spirit, we get dry. Without the word, we get weird. But the Spirit and the word together are enough to recreate the world. 
The Heidelberg Catechism 1536 teaches us to say, I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. God by His Spirit and God by His Word is going to accomplish His plans and His purposes. Think about what's happening here on Isaiah 59. He's pushing, pushing, pushing and reminding them that there is a future and that there is hope and that in the darkness and in the gloom and what seems like the oppression of sin, He's going to send a Redeemer Look again in verse 21. This is my covenant with them. Who is the them? Those in Jacob who turn from transgression. God's covenant is with repentant people. Those who in Jacob turn from transgression. So who is the you in verse 21? Well, in Hebrew, unlike English, the second person pronouns have gender. In in chapter 59, verse 21, it's masculine. But the you in chapter 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. In verse 1 of chapter 60, the you is feminine. So whoever is in chapter 59 verse 21. It's not the same person in chapter 60, verse 1. Well, who is it then? Who is the person in 59, 21? Isaiah doesn't tell us. It's as if Isaiah is hearing a conversation in heaven between persons, overhearing God's promise to give some unidentified person his word and his spirit forever for the benefit of repentant people. But you know who I think it is in verse 21? the servant. It's the Messiah. How do we know that it's the Messiah? Remember the whole New Testament? Jesus' reoccurring message? I'm giving you my spirit. If I go, I'm going to send the spirit and the spirit will be with you always. Who gives us the communication from God? Jesus. Who gives us the spirit of God? Jesus. God's promise isn't just to us. Now, this is important. It's to His Son. In other words, this is the Father promising the Son that He will provide the Spirit and the Word forever. God's promise isn't simply to you. God's promise is to His Son, the Messiah, that He will forgive you and redeem you, not reject you, and reconcile you. The promise is given not based on what you deserve, but on the promise given to His Son. And so you know what? Do you deserve to be saved? Do you deserve to be forgiven? When you think of the wickedness inside of your head and inside of your heart, is there anything redemptive about it whatsoever? Nothing. So God decides to forgive you and accept you in Christ. 
the Redeemer will fill the repentant with His Spirit and with His Word. The Redeemer will fill the repentant with His Spirit and with His Word in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their sin. The Lord will not stop caring and loving His people. He will keep His promise. He will send a a Redeemer. And that's why Isaiah writes in the very opening verse of the next chapter, Arise, shine, for your light has come. We might even say, the prophet Isaiah begins to say, Brighten up! Lighten up! Because the person who's being addressed in the opening chapter of chapter 60, verse 1, is you. And me. That's for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're so willing to forgive us. Lord, we thank you that you're so willing to hear our prayers. And Lord, if for whatever reason we're in a place in our life where we feel like, well, God, you're not answering my prayer. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would do some honest soul searching. Lord, have I done something? Is there sin that's been left unconfessed in my heart? Lord, is the way that I'm treating my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my wife, my husband, my children, my co-workers? Lord, is there something that I'm saying or doing that is so deeply repulsive and so deeply offensive? that you're doing me a favor and you're giving me a warning and you're reminding me that this is unacceptable. This is, this is not acceptable. It is unacceptable. And I won't have friendship and fellowship with you on that kind of unacceptable behavior. Lord, we know that you hear the cry of the unrepentant. Lord, we know that you hear the cry for those who are humble in heart. Lord, we know that a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. Lord, is there someone that we've hurt or offended that we need to ask forgiveness? Is there something that's going on inside of us that needs to fundamentally and radically change? Lord, like David, we pray that you would search us and that you would know us and that you would see if there's any wicked way in us that you would lead us in the way everlasting. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that's in Jesus. Full forgiveness, hope, and redemption. And Lord, we pray that as we walk with you in friendship and in fellowship, that we wouldn't allow our sin to separate us. But rather, Lord, we'd keep a short list confessing our sin, humbling ourselves, coming to you. Lord, we're thankful that you are an everlasting source of mercy and grace. In Jesus' name.